Hi, my name is Michael Frank, and this is the Prefab Pod presented by Prefab Review, where we interview leading people and companies in the prefab housing industry. Today, we're actually taking a little break from interviewing prefab manufacturers to interview Cole Peterson, who is an expert in ADUs. Uh, to give a quick, probably insufficient biography of him, Cole's an expert in all things ADU. He writes for a lot of ADU <laughs> accessory dwelling related sites. Um, I believe he's the owner of a tiny house hotel in Portland. He wrote uh, Backdoor Revolution, um, a book of, all about accessory dwellings. And he has a course called the ADU Hour. Anyway, welcome, Cole. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah. So, Cole, um, we're, uh, I'd say, I think uh, from a lot of perspectives, uh, I'd say like progress, particularly regulatory process that's enabling more accessory dwellings just to be built is among the most exciting things we see on a day-to-day basis and sort of our little part of the world, which is really kind of just factory built housing, um, sort of full stop. Um, With that being said, um, how do you get into this whole world of accessory dwellings? Building one myself and, and, you know, realizing that it was incredibly challenging, difficult, and there was zero, almost no information about how to do it. And so in the course of building one, in 2010, I documented the process on a blog and that just like kind of snowballed into a bunch of different things. Cause there's so much stuff to do on a, on a, on a personal individual level to develop an ADU, but then on a policy level and then getting beyond policy and regulations, it gets way deeper still into financing and uh, appraisals and assessments and best practices for marketing and all the other you know stuff that gets into the weeds of every facet of humanity and social science and economics that you can imagine, just like any topic that you study deeply enough. So um, anyway, that's how it kind of started for me. I started by doing it myself, writing a blog about it, and then starting to teach a class for homeowners about it. And I've been teaching that class for like 10 years now or or so. And, um, and, uh, and that, and that's just like snowballed into a lot of different things. So now all I do is ADU related education, advocacy, consulting work full time. And I'm based out of Portland, Oregon. That's awesome. So was, was your first, uh, accessory dwelling was that, so that was in your own personal house and that was in your backyard in Portland, I assume. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that was in the, the first one was a detached ADU and I lived in it for like seven years. And then I built, uh, my second ADU, which is like a basement conversion attached basement conversion ADU and I'm living in that now and I'm about to build start to build a third one which is going to be a detached new construction kind of a high-end um ADU that I'll probably move into and then um but I'm gonna you know I keep on pushing my own envelope in terms of what you know just to get experience with all the different facets of this stuff so this next one I'm going to try to ideally finance entirely not pay any money out of pocket and try to do one where I use a design build process. So um, I'm not involved with the construction at all, just to mm-hmm. kind of see what it's like to play that role, which is, you know, more akin to the prefab space, I guess. Yeah. Um, but the other two I've done, I've been very heavily involved in, in, in the design and the build portion of portion of it as a essentially playing a homeowner GC role. So you were, so in each of these, did you, you like bought, um, the sing, they were on like a, I assume there's like a single family home yeah. and then you were, it sounds like the second one you said was, was it like a junior ADU? Um, 
It's, you know, akin to a junior ADU, but it's not. It's so um, junior ADU is a phenom that only is is really just a parochial terminology that's used within the state of California. Um, and that's not used anywhere else. So um, that is, so this is just an internal con- conversion ADU of a basement. So it's the ground floor of a, of a 1973 split level house. And so it's a daylit basement conversion. So it's actually above grade but it's on a slope. So one half is above grade. The other half is like sub sub, you know, quasi subterranean. And, um, in the front portion of the house is where the kitchen living, you know, great room is the back portion is where the bedrooms are. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really cool unit. And so it's, a, you know, it's very similar to a duplex. Um, but it's, you know, it's classified as an ADU, um, for various reasons. And, um, it was, you know, previously a garage, two car garage with one like utility room and a little dinky bathroom, and we ripped everything out and started from started from the studs and kind of did a gut rehab renovation of the lower level to turn into a bona fide ADU. So let's before getting too deep into your projects, um, I'm <laughs> reminded that uh, probably do you think you can just give like a quick uh, quick. Uh, since you since you are a professor on this stuff, so to speak, or a teacher, give us a quick um, minute or two on what defines an ADU how, and how those definitions vary. Maybe I use the term junior ADU, which, as you said, is very California centric, but sort of how how this stuff varies and if it varies at all, like based on geography. Yeah, it does. It does vary, and and increasingly as the ADU movement kind of picks up steam and with California legislation and now other legislation occurring in different states and jurisdictions, the, the tried and true definition of an ADU is being, being put to the test um, because all of the kind of progressive stuff that's happening within ADU regulations is breaking out of the mold of what the quintessential definition of an ADU is with that caveat, caveat aside, it's the definition that I use is an ADU is a secondary housing unit on a single family lot. Um, which is kind of the conventional, traditional concept of an ADU. But now uh, you can no longer say it's just a secondary housing unit because, in fact, in the entire state of California, you can have two ADUs. One is a junior ADU, one is a standalone detached ADU. Um, And that's also true in Seattle. That's also true in Vancouver, Washington, uh, BC. That's also going to be true in Portland as of next summer. So Minneapolis, maybe? I'm not positive. Minneapolis doesn't allow two ADUs, but... um, but then it's also not just on single family lots. You can also do it on commercially zoned lots if there's a single primary residential dwelling on it. So if you had a commercially zoned piece of property with a residential house, you could build an ADU there. The reality is very few people, you know, that would happen very rarely because most commercially zoned lots won't have a primary residential home on it. But nonetheless, it could be theoretically developed there. And... Um, and yeah, so so the definition is just that it's a diminutive, architecturally subservient dwelling housing unit to the primary dwelling or housing unit. And that can the structural forms in which the ADU functionality can be housed can vary quite a bit um, from internal ADUs to uh, detached uh, uh, new construction ADUs to conversions of pre-existing uh, structures such as garages or whatever, uh, studios or, or workshops to attic conversion ADUs, to bump out attached ADUs. So the reality is most ADUs out there, probably half, I'd say, to to 60 to 
percent of them are detached new construction. Roughly a quarter are carve out ADUs of existing permitted structures. And then a quarter of them are like iterations of garages, ADUs above a garage or ADUs that are converted out of a pre-existing garage. And definitionally, do they need to all have like a, a kitchen and a bathroom and a shower or does that vary? They have to have what d- differentiates an ADU from any other permitted habitable, habitable living space is the kitchen. And, and really w- what differentiates a kitchen from um, when you get down into building code details is really just the sink and oven um, itself. So you can have like a countertop space that has a 110 outlet and you could plug in a microwave, a hot plate, a convection oven, uh, a fridge, and it's not an ADU because it's not a kitchen because it doesn't have a kitchen sink and, and oven. So it, you know, this is this is where I kind of like to push the envelope a little bit with these conversations regarding um, accessory dwellings in general, which is you know most people that have what look and quack like an ADU are not in fact permitted ADUs, and I'm okay with that. Um, I think from my vantage, whether or not it's classified as an ADU in terms of the local jurisdictional code, nonetheless, it's filling the same kind of social, legal, or sorry, so, social, environmental, economic uh, goals that uh, a permanent ADU can can fill. And what what's the, and what's the size range of these? I know in California, I think it, <laughs> I think it's technically still twelve hundred, but the way that we've seen the sort of regulations go, and now it sort of becomes de facto a thousand square feet. Um, but I assume. And again, we've done some accessory dwellings in other places. Um, but yeah, what what is the range you're seeing? I mean, typically, ADUs are limited to, they're almost always smaller than the primary house, um, although there's even exceptions to that. But um, but yeah, in California, which is kind of the biggest market now in the country, for sure, for ADUs, um, and specifically Los Angeles, I'd say, is yeah. the biggest among them. Uh, it's 1200 square feet is the limit, whether I, I couldn't actually tell you what the average statistical size of an ADU in California would be because the data on ADUs suck. And, um, and that's among the many, 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 many kind of policy things that I'm interested in is getting, collecting, forcing jurisdictions to create better reporting about specific aspects of ADU development so that we can start to understand how big are these things that people are actually building when they're said and done? So in the Portland market, we limit ADUs to 800 square feet. The average size of ADUs that are built in the Portland market is something like 620 square feet, the statistical average. But if you looked at across the, um, I guess that would be like the median, but the mean would be like 750 square feet. So a lot of people are building, basically maxing out their entitlement. Um now, if the limit of an ADU were, say, 1,200 square feet in Portland, people would probably try to bring it, build them bigger than 700 square feet. But there comes a point at which the site constraints themselves right. with the ability for people to build up to what they're allowed to build via entitlements. And on the new Portland stuff, are, is it going to be a similar to California where it's like basically one thing within the house and one, you know, one detached, uh, like... Uh, structure outside of the house or or will those will there be a different regulatory framework it's going to be different and better it's i'm really proud to say it's the 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 code that's coming forward in portland in one year called the residential info project coming into effect in august 2021 is going to be the i i just you know i just have to say it's going to be the best code that's ever come forward in the united states for residential development period and 
So within ADUs in particular, you can build two detached ADUs. You can build two ADUs within a single detached accessory structure. You can do one internal ADU, one detached ADU. Um, it's much more liberal than any any other code that allows for two ADUs, including Vancouver, BC, which is always kind of the godfather. You're saying, they can be, you're saying they can both be detached? So they can both basically add new space? Yeah. And is there are, are there... So let, let me run through a bunch of questions because these are the things that I that we see um, that or I see that are kind of interesting decisions from t- town to town. Um, so I'm very uninformed on the Portland one, or, <laughs> partly because it doesn't exist yet. So sort of interested in sort of your thoughts. One are there height limits because like we see in San Jose, for example, that you can effectively build two stories. Where I think in California, otherwise, I want to say it's 16 feet maximum which sort of basically makes it so like putting stuff over garages and stuff like that is much more doable is what 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 is the or is there height regulation yeah so you can build to 20 feet at the midpoint of the gable which is a weird way to frame basically being able to do a two-story dwelling so you can do what would be equivalent in california be building building up to 25 feet so if you look at california's code california's code is, is is incredibly good but it's incredibly bad in that one regard because by limiting structures to 16 feet, you're forcing... And California's, co- California's code is a minimum, right? So like, right, San Jose has gone beyond that, for example, but I don't think most areas have. Right, like Los Angeles has, and San Jose downtown has, but other parts of San Jose have not. And pretty much the vast majority of California has stuck with that 16-foot height limit, which is driving a one-story dwelling, which, you know, if you don't know any better, you'd say, oh, that's great. We allow one-story dwellings. But the reality is, from my vantage, that's killing at least one-third of the ADU market overall. So I'd say, like, I'd say that's not only just bad, it's like, it's a poison pill. California doesn't know it yet. And, and so, like, as an advocate, I would say that's the next big thing for California to do at statewide level is, like, raise that minimum from 16 to, to 25 yeah, that, that opens up the door for a variety of really specific reasons, which you can go into, to enabling a lot more AD development. It's Black not garages, right? Is the big one? Well, that's one, but that's not the biggest one. The biggest oh, cool. one is that you know most lots where we want to see ADUs built are urban infill lots, i.e., small right lots. And so, if you're forcing people to make a trade-off between say an 800 square foot ADU that's one story, it's going to eat up their most of their backyard. Or building like um, a smaller ADU in order to preserve their backyard. Well, it's a tough call, and you might end up building a smaller ADU. But that all of a sudden means you're building like a zero bedroom or a one bedroom ADU, which doesn't pencil nearly as well as a two bedroom would. And you can easily do a two bedroom in a 500 square foot footprint if you go up two stories, and you can feel huge. You can do one story, it's 500 square feet, great room below, and then a lofted bedroom on one side. It has this gorgeous, huge, voluminous, lovely spatial feeling that you cannot achieve with a one-story ADU. Um, and yet it's not taking up any more square footage of the lot. There's new, there's no reason why jurisdictions should should require ADUs to be only one story. That's like old school, dumb policy. And if you want to actually make ADUs pencil, make them take off in a bigger way, you want to at least allow for people to be able to develop something that's going to pencil on their lot. And two stories is like the, the, in Portland, we allow detached ADUs and less, definitely fewer than half of them are one story. Like that's, that's not a big portion of the market because it doesn't make sense. Like, so um, the way we've actually been hacking that a little bit, which I said the way we've been hacking that a little bit internally, um, 
which is definitely not as good as just having a two-story ADU. Um, but for that situation, we've been doing a lot of these like four foot sleeping lofts. Yeah, um, exactly. So you get like a little bit more height on the great room and then you at least, right. It's not as you can basically do like a, a bedroom sort of living room, dining room area with a sleeping loft and that. Yeah. Yeah. And you could totally hack it in different ways. You could also do a subterranean portion of the first story, but I mean, it, yeah, it's, and that's cool. And the other thing I should say, since we're on this, particular podcast is yeah. you know two-story ADUs probably wouldn't in this context it wouldn't work as well in the prefab space but nonetheless from a, from an ADU vantage providing the yeah. flexibility to go up two stories is pretty critical so um two stories work fine I mean we've done them uh honestly you just uh you just you just so prefabs typically um and again when we, we were saying prefabs you're I think you're really specifically talking about volumetric uh modular housing right the things that sort of look like tipping containers down a highway um those i think typically can go up to 13 feet high um so typically we've just done one on top of another oh okay so yeah so i guess it can be done right yeah it's just right. like a normal house um yeah um cool all right so so I, i've been portland market just to go back to the rip the rip conversation yeah you can do a two-story detached ad you can do two of them under rip and you can do but the biggest innovation that it's like a sleeper innovation, which I think is amazing is you can do two ADUs within a single building so basically a duplex, a backyard, backyard duplex, you know, and that's going to pencil really well. Right. So that'll make it more. So, right. So, so then you get, start getting to like real truck, real sort of like real small multifamily. It gets, it gets closer to that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of, it's, cool bridging into a new structural form, which you know, I anticipate will be super, it'll be a, it'll be expensive, but B it'll pencil really well. So I think that's going to drive a lot of innovation on the kind of more sophisticated developer side of things. And the amateur homeowner might not be able to figure out how to fund a $350,000 ADU, but a, a, a small scale real estate, real estate investor will be like, Oh yeah, I'm definitely going to do that. I don't want to do just a single ADU at this point. So yeah, so I've got a couple of follow up questions about that. Um, but yeah, totally. And by the way, I I think at least I think like when I see real estate opportunities, and partly this is just because in California they're really easy to permit. Um, and and we, I, I want to get to a segment on that. I do think there's a bunch of really interesting investment opportunities related to this stuff. So that's totally cool. Another question on the Portland one. So one of the things I think San Diego is doing this, but again, you're the expert. Um, different types of foundations. So vers- it, what, what, what does the Portland law entail in terms of, right? Cause it, whether it's permanent foundation or right, it can go in on wheels. Like what kind of flexibility is there on that? Yeah. So, and this is definitely up my alley too. I'm very intrigued by the, <laughs> the, the, the merging of mobile dwellings and ADUs. I think that's where there's huge potential to actually drive down costs for development. So there's five major jurisdictions in California that allow for um, movable tiny homes, MTH, to be classified as forms of ADUs. But that's the only place in the country. What, that- what are those? Just, was I right about San Diego? <laughs> uh, San Diego, Los Angeles is the big one, second biggest city in the country. So you can do it now. So that's... Huge. Um, yeah. So Los Angeles is a really, really amazing market for ADUs for a few reasons, but that's one of them. Um, Fresno, California, Ojai, California, Placer, County, California, San Luis Obispo. Really? 
Yeah, Placer County. I'm I'm a big skier. I'm I'm building a personal thing yeah. with an ATU in uh near near Squaw Valley. So that that's cool. And we're we're Placer County. That's awesome. Uh, Placer. Yeah, I I didn't know that. Um, that's great. Yeah. Really so cool. Portland doesn't allow for um, it, no other besides those places. There's no other place in the country that allows for tiny homes to be classified as ADUs. There's very few places that go really even allowing for tiny houses to be lived in on residential lots in general. Um, and this is a whole kind of side, the interest of mine that I, I really want to see progress on this. Cause I think there we're just at the very baby steps of where that is, that aspect of things is going to go. But, but I'm definitely, I, I think what California is doing is okay. At least five jurisdictions, but, um, but they require that the, um, movable tiny homes meet park model RV standards, which is in and of itself um, a pretty expensive form of mobile dwelling. So let's say that those would cost minimum $50,000, probably more like $100,000 for a nominal one, um, which is great. But what about travel trailers that cost $10,000? If we're actually trying to solve for affordable housing, why are we making it so damn expensive to build it? Um and in Portland, not that what's the, what would the, what would, sorry to interrupt. Um, what would the counter, what would their counter argument be to that? Are there specific like structural um, necessities that, that the park model stuff have that the uh, travel trailers don't? Well, I mean, I think, I think, uh, you know, park model RVs are intended for, I guess they're all kind of intended for, you know, they're classified as forms of RVs, which are intended for, you know, temporary habitation, but you know, people do live in RVs and park model RVs and different forms of mobile dwellings, vans, tiny house on wheels for years and years and years. So I think that these standards that people are ostensibly putting up barriers to living in mobile dwellings are about are a little bit fabricated and not based in actual fact. They're based in, you know, bureaucratic, legacy, outdated, outmoded ways of conceiving of this stuff. I mean, and bottom line is by compelling people to have foundations or driving up the four concrete, you know, foundation, traditional conventional foundations, we're driving up the cost of construction, which is causing an affordable housing crisis, which is causing people to live in the streets in tents under bridges. And so I think what I would like to see is a lot more creativity around this question of enabling mobile dwellings, whether they be park model RVs or tiny house on wheels or RVs or travel trailers or anything. Um, and just allowing for those to be used on residential lots and coming up with standards that are reasonable, but like, you know, I, I think it's reasonable to say, Oh, you know, we are going to require that these mobile dwellings have legally permitted sewer connections. And so you have to have a conventional toilet that you can plug into that sewer connection, but to compel that the structural form must be wood clad and must be built to park model RV standards to me is arbitrary. I would like to, you know, I'd really like to question uh, the, the rationale of that because I think it's, you know, it's as a, as an interim step, I get that it's a, it's a step forward in the right direction because it allows for mobile dwellings, but I, I think it's, you know, causing the prices of those mobile dwellings to be roughly eight times what they would be. If you go on Craigslist right now in your jurisdiction, type in 
travel trailer, you will find a hundred travel trailers for sale that you can live in right now for less than $10,000. So I, I just, I think, I think, you know, the pushback might be aesthetic NIMBY stuff about how we don't want yep. our town to become trailer trash, but I'm very skeptical of that kind of BS right. because that's the same stuff that comes up with prefab, right. the same stuff that comes up with ADUs in general. Totally. Yeah. Um, cool. Sorry. So I interrupted you. So um, were there, there, I think you, you were continuing to let us know about the Portland. Uh, yeah. The Portland regulations. Were there any other things that we should know about that though specifically? Oh God. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. I mean, so you can do up to four units on every lot. So that's, so you can do two, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes. They're eliminating all off street parking requirements altogether. So no matter Sorry, what. So, so how does that work? Cause you said you could do, you could do two, you can add like a triplex or you, I thought you were saying you could only do two or do you have to do two outside the single family home and then one within the envelope? You can do two ADUs. So if you do an ADU, you don't have to pay residential impact fees, but they're limited to 800 square feet. And, and if you're doing two ADUs, then you, those are allowed on um, as a detached accessory structures or in single detached accessory structure. If you do a triple, duplex, triplex, or fourplex, the way that Portland is defining that is that they have to be sharing a conditioned wall. So you have to have, you know, uh, the structures have to be attached, basically. But that could be a new, but that could be, but you, so you could basically take a single family home, add a triplex and share a wall and you'd be cool. Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. You can, yeah, add a triplex. Yep. Totally. <laughs> and then they're going to allow cottage clusters by right pretty much everywhere. So that's multiple, it's like, you know, four or more detached accessory structures on a lot, um, retaining the single family house or not. Um, so that's going to be allowable structural form. Um, so those are the big changes, but there's a lot of other changes that are, it's, it's complicated stuff, um, but ultimately it's just, you know, it's enabling the type of freedom that allows for the free market to operate as it should without the artificial constraints that have been put in over the decades by, you know, zoning regulations that were informed in part by racist ideologies. Totally. So should we, uh, should me and you uh, go into business together tomorrow and raise a fund and just start buying like single family homes with backyards in parts of Portland or in, you know, I'm being, I'm joking, but like, are people starting to do that? It, Cause right. Like I, th- I think, what do you think six, six months or a year isn't that far from now. No, it's not. Yeah. I mean, and, and everybody in, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people who've already built NADU are yeah. now they're just like, yep, I am ready to start playing my process here of building a second ADU. It's definitely, I mean, I'm one of those people I'm doing, I'm going to start mine, you know, right pretty soon here. So, uh, 20, cause, so you, you couldn't do a three-story per se, right? Like you you couldn't do a three-story triplex, right? You no, you can. Yeah. Yeah. You, but if it's a, if it's a detached accessory structure, it's limited to 20 feet at the midpoint of the gable. If it's a primary dwelling or a duplex, triplex, fourplex, you can build up to 30 feet at the midpoint of the gable. Uh, when you say it's a fourplex, does that count the primary uh, residence, or is that, or are you saying there could be five units on the property? Four, no, four is limit. Except now, yeah, so it gets deeper still. So if you meet what are called deep affordability requirements, which are like half the units are rented out at a right. certain percent of MLP, yep. then you can build six uh, okay, cool. property. Nice. Um, yeah, cool. that'll, that'll be a code that's utilized by affordable housing groups that own single-family housing stock more than amateur homeowner developers or affordable right, right. 
developers in general. But then, but then, it, but then it's sort of advantageous. Again, I don't. I typically have sort of mixed feelings about these kind of laws being right, like subsidizing certain groups. Oftentimes, I feel like they end up being a little counterproductive. But that's cool. But I, I at least understand the I, the ideology is right that you are making it more palatable to build affordable housing, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just it it, it just happens to pencil for affordable housing developers to do it if they do it this if they if if they do it this way whereas uh, i think the math the the kind of the pro formas that were worked out show that it would be difficult for the math to pencil out for affordable housing developers to build fourplexes but the deeper affordability bonus facilitated a way like a kind of a, a pro forma that would allow for sixplex 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 development so that's um, yeah, yeah so you know, I don't know how, how much it'll be used, but it's, you know, great. And when it comes to, and when it comes to housing regulation, sorry, we've gone way deeper on this Portland regulation. And what's the name of the, is there a bill name or a law name on this specifically? So, um, yeah, uh, it has the unfortunate acronym of RIP, R-I-P. Um, and it's, uh, that stands for the Residential Infill Project. Um, incidentally, since we're talking about this in depth, I'll just mention that on October 14th, uh, next month, I'm going to be teaching a one-hour class about the Residential Infill Project and Health, Oregon House Bill 2001 through an organization called Earth Advantage that I partner, partner with. And I would invite anybody who's interested in this to, it's, I'm going to be targeting my presentation for like homeowner developer, realtor developer types. And um, I'm going to be teaching that workshop. And then there's going to, the, the two guest speakers will be the authors of the two regulations. Um, in Oregon House Bill 2001, we haven't touched on yet, but it's essentially taking RIP and expanding it statewide. So every single city is going to have a regulation that's equivalent to RIP. That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, okay. So, uh, all right. So a couple things on this, um, financing, um, <laughs> I think we're planning to get to that at some point. Um, so I mean, one of the, I think that's one of the most challenging things. Oh, so I, I guess I, I do want to talk about financing, but before that, um, in terms of short-term rentals, are are people going to be able to use these new units for short-term rentals? Because it seems like a lot of the areas in the country have basically said, hey, we want you to be able to do this. But yeah, you, you can't make money on short-term rentals using this. You can only do you know XYZ on these things, which again, I think depending on the area can also make it more challenging. What, what kind of limitations are there on that, if any, for the Portland rule? Yeah, and and this is like the most you know maybe controversial question I guess amongst you know jurisdictions that are considering ADUs. This comes up everywhere. Um, so basically, what Portland does is we allow for ADUs to be used as short-term rentals. You can rent up to two bedrooms on your property as a short-term rental, whether it's in the primary dwelling or the ADU. It doesn't matter. Um, but if you choose to do that, if you choose to build an ADU and have a short-term rental on the property, then you have to pay the residential impact fee, which is 25,000 bucks. So it's a per in total, uh, for, per, for the ADU. Yeah. And then a primary residential dwelling would be like the SDCs or residential impact fees would be like yeah. 30, 30, 35. Yeah. So it's a pretty big disincentive to pursue yeah. that, you know, given how expensive development okay. is, people totally. can't or the extra 30, 25,000 bucks. So people typically won't do it. Um, and as a result, fewer ADUs are built, but the house, but the city is meeting its, you know, the city is like, why would we want to subsidize you to add a hotel room? Like, that's not 
uh, meeting any of our policy objectives. So I, t- I fully support the city's approach on that because yeah. I don't see how they could rationalize um, subsidizing a hotel room. However, as you know, that does undermine the interest of a lot of people building ADU. So it's a complicated conversation, but yeah. California has just simply, you know, I think simply outright banned short-term rentals in ADUs for new, you know, under the 2019 legislation. And I think, I think as a trade-off to getting good legislation, I think that's a fine approach. I've come around. I used to think, you know, free market libertarian kind of guy to this stuff, but I've kind of come around to saying, you know what, a lot of these ADUs are being used as short-term rental and as an advocate for ADUs. I don't, I don't have any passion for that. Like, why are we doing it? You know? Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the financing of ADUs. Um, so I'm definitely interested. It seems like the, I mean, we see people like finance them constantly. And luckily a lot of the people in the country who own single family homes, who want to be able to use, right. Have some equity in their home and they can use some form of home equity for this. Um, what uh it seems like i haven't seen many examples of like alternative financing based on like the cash flows of property uh, uh, the future cash flows of properties like in sort of some other business type expenses but you know i know i think i think dweller i don't know if they're still doing it near you guys was experimenting with this there have been a bunch of these sort of like hey we build something on your property and split the profits for a little while um which i think is an okay not perfect model also what uh, what are the interesting things that you're seeing from a financing perspective? Yeah, I think I think that's an interesting set of experiments that are going on. I really like that. I really like to see private development models that cut out conventional banks and kind of come up with some innovation. And they're all kind of spinning off the same concept that Dweller is, which is to say, we will build the ADU, we'll somehow come up with the private equity to finance it, and then we'll we'll take the majority of the rent. And there's five. Things I know that are doing that now, three of whom are I mean, a lot of them are in California, right? or five in Portland, or no, in California primarily. Yeah, there's United Dwellings, right? There's Rent My Backyard. Who are the other ones? I'm just curious. Um, those are two. There's one. Um, there's Dweller. There's Homestead, and then there's one other one. Um, okay, thinking. Yeah, in- no big deal. I'm just, I was just curious. Um, yeah. yeah. How how else so, do you see people finance this stuff? I mean, so, so yeah, there, there's a lot of innovation occurring in the finance space. Um, one is um, the thing that I'm most excited about is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac conventional portfolio or conventional renovation financing standards are getting better and better incrementally. And so like on this next project, I'm going to be using hopefully just a conventional FHA 203k loan financing option. Um, that's not innovative. Those don't provide a ton of cash, though, for the remodel, right? Is it, I mean, is, aren't they fairly? I mean, well, you can tell me. I, I when I've looked into those before, aren't they fairly limited in terms of the amount of money they give you towards the repair? No, they're pretty pretty good. I mean, yeah. so I mean, it, you have to find the right lender to work with. But like my case, because I'm going to be building a second ADU, our goal to finance it as though it's a triplex from a financing perspective. So that brings up the forming loan limit from $524,000 to like 789. Yep. So that that's enough to be able to build not just an ADU, but like a really high end, large, you know, scale yeah. 
EU and the Portland market. So I think when we get, this stuff is getting really interesting as we get into like bridging the gap between single family homes and middle housing, which is two, three, four units, then the financing is going to become all the more interesting, complicated, and critical to being able to develop this stuff. And it's not really the government's, like, it's not really local government's job to figure that out, but lenders should. And Mm -hmm. in any case, I'm really interested in those kind of incremental changes that are happening within Fannie and Freddie to uh, enable renovation loan financing using homestyle renovation loan financing. There's, um, there's also, you know, mission driven philanthropic lenders that are lending quite a bit of money, you know, upwards of $250,000 to build an ADU at pretty reasonable interest rates. It, you know, under some conditional applications, like the ADU has to be rented out to section eight for a separate summer, you know, set number of years or whatever. That stuff is all fledgling. I, you know, I wish I could say, oh, this is taking off. It's it's not really taking off. It's but there's a lot of pilot efforts going on from that. We've front. talked to a few people in San Jose and Portland doing that stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was surprised at how the ones we've talked to have had awesome, in, like awesome deals, right? Like no money up front, like five percent interest rates, six percent interest rates, and like they'd actually seemed like they were having a hard time getting enough uh, people. And like, no, it's totally right. I mean. Which, to me was really surprised me. The market is, um, it's interesting. Cause like I, I was mentioning how we no longer allow for short term rentals and ADUs unless you pay the residential impact fees. When that change occurred in 2018, that dropped the number of ADUs being permitted quite a bit. So the, now the demand for ADU development is gone down quite a bit. Cause we've kind of been in the, I don't know, we're more, it's been around for a longer. So it's not like, it's not like a mad rush like there is in California right now. Um, So it's hard to know whether the lack of interest in those kind of mission driven, mission driven lending options is just a sheer result of the lack of overall demand for AD development or what, but yeah, I I concur that uh, the, they've had a surprising little amount of interest. Um, Maybe they've just done a poor job marketing. I don't know. But most people, as you mentioned, are not using these innovative ways of financing. 80s are using HELOCs, cash savings, family loans, and stuff. And so, like that's still kind of the main way that people are doing this stuff. But there's there's several other approaches that people are experimenting with. Uh, things like equity sharing financing, um, equity models or shared equity model financing, um, and uh, Mm, I mean, yeah. So there, there's a, there's a couple other like small experimental things that are going on here and there, hard money lending, but um, but I'd say that you know ninety five percent are being are using kind of like the traditional HELOC cash savings family loan kind of save it you know development or financing options, and then and then to the extent that there's you know exp- you know what i see as like the hori- what i see on the horizon is really just like renovation loan financing getting better and better and better and i hope that it does because that's that's what we need to happen really to to scale up adu development the thing that we're actually i've been trying to push more people um, who come into our concierge service into it um because i think it's interesting um that honestly seems better on paper than just the number of people we've done in practice is have you seen, and this is maybe potentially more of a California concept, have you met, seen many people trying to do uh, 
different kinds of TIC arrangements, um, particularly for owner occupiers. Uh, you know what that is, right? In terms yeah. of, so TIC is sort of a hack in California. Um, I think it started in the San Francisco area that people did to get around the inability to condoize places. So you basically sort of do an equity share, um, typically called tenancy in common on like a multi-unit building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you as- assign occupancy rates. Um, so you're essentially creating separate units. And there are a couple banks, because these are like a mature product, there's a couple banks like Sterling Bank, I think is probably the best known one that just, they have TIC loan products and they like underwrite them similar to condos. So things like that, that seem to like make it easier for, right? Like if I own a single family home and someone wants to, like I have a friend who wants to build an apartment on my property. Um, again, it seemed that those, those I, we honestly haven't seen them used a lot, but <laughs> my theory that they're good. Okay. So I, this is actually, I, this I, is I, awesome. A lot, of, a lot of the innovation on this stuff is and will continue to occur out of the San Francisco Bay Market for a few reasons. But I think that that type of like um, co-ownership financing model, you know, it's it's a it's a financing by necessity type of option in the San Francisco market. And so hopefully that will kind of percolate into other markets in, in, in the United States. Um, OK, so just want to this has this has been one of our. Uh... Um, longest running main sessions because I think we're both passionate about these issues, but I want to get into a sort of a quicker than normal fire round. Um, we can ask you quick questions, try to do one minute answers, but won't come down too hard on you. Um, if you don't, uh, so first quick one, what are you think the one or two most, um, interesting investment opportunities, um, created by ADUs these days? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, if if I was like an, a real estate investor, which I'm not, um, I would probably be looking at, you know, prop, just doing a good analysis of properties in California where you can have a, a junior ADU and a primary ADU. And like, you know, I mean, it's not, there's nothing too innovative about it, but I think that's, that's what I'd be looking for. And just like, what kind of housing stock can do that? Where is the market ripe? Where is, where does it pencil? And, and, um, you know, just do that. I think that's, that's a totally reasonable thing. I think that's in and of itself a little bit controversial because I think there's some hesitancy about, or there's some concern about um, uh, investors scooping up residential property and, and, and putting it, turning it into a how, you know, rental stock. But yeah. I guess, I guess my interest is in just seeing more small housing units overall. So I'm pretty yeah. new when it comes to this stuff, like more housing is good. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, next question. Um, what are your favorite ADU designs? Are there, um, I mean, again, we, we see this a lot <laughs> because it's sort of what we do. Are there specific designs of, or specific ADUs that you think are really beautiful or really cool? I like two-story ADUs with a lofted bedroom on one half and a great room below. And that's, that's the, the bomb design. It, it, it always looks good. It's pretty simple. You can, there's a lot of creativity within that envelope and it all, it's just the way to go. It's like, it's perfect. It makes the space feel huge. It gets you everything you want. So yeah. Are there, that, are there design build firms or, I mean, like I like, or like specifically like, um, we, whether they're prefab or, or modular or just stick built, um, or architects, um, that you think do a really good job with that? I mean, it's, it's like I said, in Portland, it's like, that's what all, that's what yeah, most, yeah. 
are. Yeah. So I, I couldn't, wouldn't point out like a particular designer. I'd, I'd just go to accessorydrawings.org and, and look at all the designers there that are listed. And because that's what most ADUs are in Portland, you'll see a lot of those. Um, and so it, it's kind of just the natural way that you would design an ADU. Um, are there, I don't know, we, we tend to be pretty domestically focused with a little bit of expertise in Canada. Um, and I think they're called laneway houses or something similar like than that in Canada. Um, are there international examples of the accessory dwe- dwelling trend that you think are really interesting? Yeah, I mean, Vancouver is, the, like I said, kind of the godfather of ADUs um, with allowing for two ADUs, among other things, um, laneway homes and secondary suites is what they're called there. Uh, and that's really the best market in terms of like concentrated ADUs. But New South Wales in Australia is another big area for ADUs. And um, I'd say the sheer number of ADUs is probably more in New South Wales than there is anywhere else. But it's dispersed over a greater over the state of New South Wales. So it's a pretty broad area. But I think that's Sydney, if I'm not mistaken, or Melbourne. I don't even know. Yeah. yeah. So that's it. I mean, there's not outside of that. And, um, those two locations and uh, in the United States, like ADUs are not really a, a phenom. There's some legacy uh, ADU type stuff in England that I've never seen in person, but they're called new houses and they're on like alleys, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, that's it. And then final uh, question. Uh, and we'll exclude Portland for the sake of this, um, and you can even exclude California if you want, because we've talked about both of those states at length. Um, what do you think the best legislatures or the best cities or states are um, in terms of regulation are these days on this? If we're looking for interesting examples of sort of the future. Oregon House Bill 2001. It, it's not very well known yet, but you'll be hearing about it. It's a big deal. It's it's just it's just taking a rip and putting it's putting that same mentality into the code statewide and as a result of it being statewide that means it's essentially a universal model that can be a that could be utilized anywhere so um so i'm excited to see if that gets picked up so we're seeing like connecticut and virginia now look at allowing for middle housing based on house bill 2001 um and so that's you know i I think we're gonna ultimately we're gonna see that 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 crack um, open up in more places and hopefully, hopefully so because the entire East coast is abysmal and needs to leapfrog out of their antiquated zoning regulations and go, you know, well beyond where they are now. So I hope that they do leapfrog and they can look to Oregon house bill 2001 to do so. But, um, but I think it's, you know, yet to be determined how all this stuff will actually pencil, whether people build middle housing or not. Um, it's not like California where the numbers will obviously make sense. It's, you know, Oregon's not, it's, it's not as expensive. So even with the best code in the world, we're not going to see tons of this stuff being built. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, cool. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being on the prefab pod. Um, everyone, if you want to learn more about coal, um, again, search 80 accessory dwelling. Um, I think accessory dwelling strategies.com is probably one place to find them. Google backdoor revolutions and other Google, the ADU hours and other, um, to find out more about some of the stuff I talked about as it relates to accessory dwellings and, uh, prefab and modular housing prefabreview.com is always a good place to check out things out. Cole, thanks very much. Really appreciate the time. 
Yeah, it's been great. Thanks, Michael.